Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understanding you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton. Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady, we're sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I am on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is, should I get a job? With a nonprofit. And according to a 2019 report by the Center for Civil Society Studies at Johns Hopkins University, nonprofits account for roughly one in 10 jobs in the United States private workforce, with total employees worth numbering 12.3 million dollars, I'm sorry, dollars, 12.3 million people in 2016. And um, you know, I want to cover this topic because I, I think it's timely for a, a number of reasons. N- number one, as we record this on May 13th, 2021, we are seeing some unprecedented conditions in the job market. Uh, for the first time in my lifetime, and I am uh, i just passed uh, age 51, so that makes me 1970 vintage. This is the first time I can ever remember people talking about a labor shortage, um, where you just, I mean, it, 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 there have been times it's been difficult to hire people. Of course, in the 1990s, we had the dot-com boom, and we had a very tight labor market. But, but there was never an issue, there's never really a thought that we just didn't have enough people to fill jobs. Um, and the conversation this time, uh, I think, is very different. I think it's also relevant because, you know, the, the, the pandemic and other things that have happened, of course, you know, right along with it, we've had massive social upheaval. Um, you know, and, and, and many of the effects of those two phenomena have been not great. Um, you know, people have been hurt. They've been died. They, they've died. They've had their, their lives, their careers, perhaps inexorably altered. But it's also led, I think, as any crisis, any cataclysm really creates is something new that's going to rise from the ashes. And what I'm observing as I read and as I talk to people, as I listen to other podcasts, TED Talks, etc., you know, one thing that's rising from the ashes is I think many people are re-examining what they want to do with the rest of their lives. They're re-examining, is what I was doing in 2019, is it really all that in a bag of chips, frankly? And, and do I kind of want to go back to that in 2021, even if I get two shots, even if I get 10 shots, even if everybody I know and their uncle and aunt get shots, you know, am I all fired up to going back to what I was doing then? And, and you know, now realizing, you know, how life short is and, and you know, the, I, for, I don't know what the death toll is in the United States. 
the official death toll is a half a million. I think it's likely higher than that from the from the pandemic. And although it's been concentrated among the elderly, it certainly has not been limited to that. And so, you know, our, our my generation X and other and subsequent generations have been confronted with mortality in, in your face widespread way that, again, I don't think that I can remember. And I think it's prompting a lot of people to, to, to do some soul searching and say, you know, as, am, am I doing what I really want to be doing? And, 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 and that leads into that labor force discussion is that it's, you know, partially that we don't have enough people in our last conversation we had um, last week with uh, uh, Jeffrey Krasenik you know, the decline in labor force in the United States has been, has been occurring since 2010. This is simply made, this phenomenon simply made it more, um, made it more noticeable. But I think a lot of people are reexamining what, not only, you know, what are they doing, but why are they doing it? And I think people are starting to place a premium on, if I'm going to work, then I want it to be more meaningful than a paycheck. Frankly, I want it to be more meaningful than paying off my student loans. Um, you know, if that's all, if that's all it is, I'm not sure how interested. And so I think, I think the, the, I think for many people, the thoughts are turning to a nonprofit, right? Many non, you know, I think by definition, when you work for a nonprofit, you're, you're committing to work for something that's a purpose greater than yourself. And our guests will talk to us more about that. But, you know, one of the attractions I think for working for a nonprofit is I cannot imagine it's all about, it's all about the paycheck. You don't, you don't change your career to the nonprofit world to get rich. You change your career because you want your work life to have a greater impact beyond yourself. And I just, you know, from what I'm seeing and how people are reflecting upon their lives, how their spirituality is evolving in this trans pandemic environment. Uh, I think that it's a timely topic and I hope that you, the listeners think that it's a timely topic too. And, and helping us work through this are two guests, uh, Elisa Goodwin and Stan Dawson. Elisa Goodwin is currently president and CEO of Mission Hope, an Atlanta-based international nonprofit serving through local leaders in the world's most remote villages to build sustainable solutions to their most urgent issues. Last year, Mission Hope served 45,000 in remote villages where no one else was helping. She has spent the last 15 years in nonprofit service. Prior to that, she was a bank executive in small business banking and retail for more than two decades. For those considering profit versus nonprofit careers, she can definitely provide perspective. Also joining us is Stan Dawson, who is the executive director of Crossroads Community Ministries from 1999 to 2016, at which point I believe he retired. Prior to that, Stan was partner, co-owner of Northside Material Brokers Incorporated. Before that, was executive director of Creative Interchange Incorporated, which is a, a division of FCS Urban Ministries that's focused on job development and business creation for those living in low-income communities. He also served as National Community Services Director for Prison Fellowship Incorporated in Washington, D.C., another connection, because our, la our last topic was about uh, um, making a decision to hire people with a criminal record. Mm -hmm. Stan also worked with Boys Clubs of America, where he designed the Self-Help self -help Youth Employment Program. He spent almost three years with Campus Life Youth for Christ International working with low-income high school students. Stan's first job out of school was with the First National Bank of Atlanta and their marketing department. Currently, he's married with two adult children and two grandchildren. Elisa and Stan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So um, this may sound like an obvious question, but I think it's actually quite nuanced. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to ask it anyway, because I don't want to assume. What is a nonprofit exactly? 
You want to go first, Mike, or me? Lisa, why don't you take it? Sure. Um, so it's it's an organization that qualifies for tax exempt status from the IRS, and its mission or purpose is to further a social cause and provide public benefit. And um, if you are uh, qualifying for people to write off their donations, then you're a 501c3. That's the really um, simple explanation or definition of it, but that's pretty much what it is. Okay. So I'd like you both to talk about your, your origin stories. Uh, Stan, I'll, I'll ask you to lead off first. You, you, you spent a good chunk of your career, and it sounds like from a pretty early age in the nonprofit sector. How did you get there? That was not my intent. Uh, grew up right near downtown Atlanta, got a business degree, and I was my one goal in life at that point was to make as much money as I could. Um, coming out of college with business degree, I got on at that point, as you'd mentioned earlier, with one of the largest banks in Atlanta. Then it was known as the First National Bank of Atlanta since morphed many times into uh, Wells Fargo today. And I was really fortunate uh, through a professor friend landed in their marketing department. And most people in starting out in banking, at least back then, you had to start at ground level. So I was really fortunate, excited, thrilled that I'd be on the path to establishing a solid financial foundation. Well, 15 months into it, my heart started pounding away and I realized that for me to have a goal of making as much money as I could wasn't going to bring me joy in life. It might bring me a happy retirement, but I wanted to I wanted to enjoy what I was doing while I was doing it. So got involved with, as you said, Campus Life Youth Organization, uh, mainly underprivileged teenagers at that point. Fell so in love with that. I uh, morphed into the next phase, which was aligning myself with a brand new organization as since become quite well known, at least in Southeast Atlanta, and that's Family Consultation Services, which in effect worked with the same population, but uh, parents, children, teens, whomever was in that demographic. Fell in love even deeper with what I was doing. That led to involvement at one point with federal prisoners Chuck Colson, who you may remember as President Richard Nixon's hatchet man, uh, started this organization. Tremendous job. We were helping federal prisoners. Uh, did that for a few years. Moved back to Atlanta, re-engaged with FCS, ran some businesses for them. And then after 20 plus years, decided maybe it was time to step away, take a break from nonprofit work and uh, get back to pursuing the goal of chasing money. So went into partnership with another individual was making more money than I ever had. And suddenly 
the heart started pounding away. And I said, this isn't worth it. I'm making all this money and I'm very miserable. With that, long story short, a door opened up at Crossroads. They were looking for an executive director because of my background and obviously my most recent business experience. I jumped into the hopper and uh, was selected to be the next executive director. And then until I retired, I just spent 16 incredible, joyous years um, doing that program, directing that program. Lisa, how about you? I know you had a little bit of a different path. What, what's your origin story? How did you, how did you and, and not the nonprofit world meet? Okay. Well, um, so I was having a really great time in banking for, like you said, over two decades. I, um, I moved up the ladder quickly, got my MBA to be more competitive. One trip still why just got stock options. It was a blast. And, um, and I loved banking. So I had no, the only mission that I had was to be the next bank president. I was perfectly satisfied, but I made the, um, well, and I'm being facetious, but the mistake of saying, you know, God, send me where you want me. And if you ever want me to leave banking, just make it clear and I'll leave. Well, there you go. And then <laughs> two weeks later, we were getting ready for a recession and um, the senior team was getting together and, and uh, the leader said, you know, you guys need to decide that you're in this with me and we're going to make some changes. It's going to affect you, but you'll still get your salary and all your good stuff. But are you in? And um, long story short, I felt like I couldn't make a decision right there. So since I needed to make a decision, I really felt like that was a clear point to terminate a 17 year relationship with one particular leader. Um, it was super difficult to do. And I was sure that my purpose was to go into another you know, in the financial industry, just a different job. I was a senior VP at that point, like you said, in, in retail and small business banking and loving every minute of it and very fulfilled. Um, but uh, so I started looking in the financial industry and applied to one nonprofit that I knew of because of my um, experience with a board member who gave generously to that organization. And I'd read their book and loved it. And actually, the president of that organization was the former prison fellowship president after Chuck Colson. So, uh, wow. Stan, we have a little connection yeah. there. I'm Pratt. So, anyway, um, they called me, and I was sure that they were going to offer me or invite me to give a major gift. <laughs> I really didn't think they would want, you know, a, a, a jaded banker to take a ministry position. And so I went in and they didn't have a role and the guy liked me and, and said, all I have is this assistant position. And, and here I had been a, a senior VP. And I said, well, you know, if this is where I'm supposed to be, uh, you know, God will provide, let's keep talking. Ended up going into the senior team meeting. He wanted me to meet everyone. Tom Pratt saw me and said, I want to see this lady's resume. And as a result, my first gig was at a, an international ministry. And I was running the uh, essentially sales, the equivalent in a nonprofit of sales is philanthropy fundraising. So I ran the fundraising, the marketing and communications, and that was my background. And um, 
And that's how it all started. And I've got to tell you, I've never felt like I had to be a nonprofit, even though it's certainly rewarding. But every time I think, you know, that it's God's kind of stirring me up to go somewhere. And I say, well, if you want me to go back into the for-profit world and, you know, be a, a light and an encouragement and do my job, I'll do it. But he keeps sending me into nonprofit. So here I am 15 years later, still a nonprofit and enjoying it. I've, I've had a career that I've loved every minute of for-profit and nonprofit. Well, I can see that for the listeners. You can't see the video, but I can see she's got a big smile on her face. She <laughs> talks about this. So uh, cer- certainly looks like you're enjoying it. So uh, a question I'd like both each of you to take a swing at. Um, it could be just my bias, though I don't think so. But if it is, I'll, I'll cop to it. But I think there's a sense that when people leave the corporate sector to join a nonprofit and to join that world, there can be the perception that that's sort of a transition to retirement or um, it's maybe a capstone to a career, right? But not something that's viewed. I mean, it's viewed, I, I think, in, in some circles, if you don't know what you're talking about, to be perfectly candid, as, as something of a step down from being in the corporate environment, right? doesn't pay as well. Perhaps the intensity is less, uh, you know, but you'll, you'll either confirm or disabuse me of that notion. And I'm, you know, I'm curious, is that is that is that accurate? Is that a is that a bad bias? Is there some truth to that? How, how would you kind of react to that observation? Um, I can go first if you want. Um, I would say first of all, I don't. I know that some people consider it like their halftime transition, and some people do consider it kind of in semi-retirement mode, but I think it's just completely situational and can go either way. For me, it was just the next step in my career. Um, Did it actually set me back? Yeah, I took about a 65% pay cut and went from six weeks vacation to zero the first year with loads of experience. So heck yeah, I call it my desert period. Now, you know, I've I've pretty much recovered from that, but... um, yeah, I mean, in terms of that, it is there. There are jobs that are sweet that pay a lot of nonprofit, but there's a lot more probably that don't. I would say, and I even worked for um, an organization that didn't have medical benefits, and I had to turn around and find ways to to provide that because I could not take care of my people. But in terms of how demanding it is, I would say <laughs> that I thought I worked like a dog in banking. But now I work like a dog, a cat and a gorilla. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a lot. It's demanding and rewarding. So if you don't do it for the passion and the mission, then you probably should still be in for profit because, you know, it is rare that you are um, compensated fully for all that you sacrifice to be in that role. And I mean that in a positive way, but it is the truth. Yeah, you know, I mean, it is. I mean, it is a trade-off that 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 we're talking about. At least I perceive it to be that way, anyway. Um, Stan, w- w- you want to add anything to that? Well, just to say that for me, uh, as I had mentioned, I was making more money than I ever had, but my heart was just empty. And when this opportunity presented itself, I just I couldn't get to it fast enough. I had to dissolve my side of the partnership, but it was just such a joy to leap the fact that I was going to take a pay cut uh, never entered my mind. 
I knew that I was getting older faster and that I wanted the rest of my work life to be involved with helping to make lives better for those the organization was serving. Um, I will say that the, the business opportunity, when you run a business, of course, P&Ls, balance sheets are very, very important. Often people think that in the nonprofit sector, it's not quite as important, but it's just like running a business. You better have more revenue coming in than going out or regardless of how big your heart is, the uh, the doors are going to eventually close. So my business degree and ownership position for those four or five years, I took all that skill with me to the nonprofit and I think elevated my management status, if you will, much quicker than it would have had I just started out in the world of nonprofits. You know, you, you say something that I'd like to, i like to pause on a little bit because I, I think that's, I think that's important. Um, I, I've, I've served on the board on boards of a couple of nonprofits, never been employed by one, never been offered employment by one. But, but one thing that, that struck me is that generating revenue for a nonprofit I think maybe harder, maybe a lot harder than generating revenue for a for-profit. You know, I'm, I'm a partner in a CPA firm and I'm a practice leader. And frankly, I, you know, I, I can sell. Uh, And if I don't, I, uh, I'm going hungry. Um, But if I had to sell kind of the way or the, the way that nonprofits generate revenue, that's just a different animal, man. And I, I think, I think in some, I think a lot of ways it's harder, isn't it? I mean, what, what do you think about that? Am I do, am I into something there? Or am I all wet? No, not at all. Um, the at crossroads, who we had the privilege of serving was people who came to us that were homeless. They could have been a bank executive, a pro athlete, crack cocaine abuser, prostitute. It all walks of life can came through our doors at Crossroads. Um, and, you know, when you when you don't have a hard product to sell, if you will, for 97 cents, what you're selling is trying to make a human's life a little bit more joyful, more livable, more sustainable. Uh, that that's a challenging task. I'm sure Lisa with her mission ran into this, runs into the same thing, but to try to raise revenue for that particular population is a real challenge. So it, it, you better come with a briefcase full of business savvy knowledge base about the population you're serving and what it is you need and are asking for so that the folks you're requesting funds from will um, buy into your sense of accountability. Because if they don't, there's no going back with a less expensive product. Lisa, what do you you think? Oh, my word, it's tremendously different and more difficult. 
So in banking, of course, if you can show me how you can save me money and make my business easier to run, and I like and trust you, you're gold. In the nonprofit sector, you have to still build the relationship and, you know, be trustworthy. But then, you know, as Stan said, you've got to connect with where their heart is, where they want to um, have their money make the biggest impact. And there are tons of different ways they look at that, right? So you've got to figure out what triggers them and what's going to keep them engaged as opposed to if I simply save you money on your loan and your deposits, et cetera. I've got your business as long as I stay competitive. And just like the for-profit industry, you are competing with tons of other nonprofits who know where the money is and they are pinging on these people as well. And then you've got the, the people that are so jaded. They talk about how they feel like an ATM machine. That's kind of a common phrase. And so then they'll use third parties like National Christian Foundation and other community foundations so that they are a bit separated from the organizations unless they choose to engage. Um, and then that kind of, uh, you know, creates an even a wider distance from you and that minister or that but partner. So it's even harder to keep them engaged. I mean, there are benefits to it. So not discounting the value, but it is kind of now there's an additional gatekeeper to that person. So it's, it's, it honestly is a lot tougher. You can transition those skills and learn the ways to engage people and be really conscious of what triggers them and, you know, their vision trips and things like that. But um, it's not as simple. I could do banking and my team and I would be number one all day long for years, but transitioning to nonprofit, it was just a whole new game. So I know I want to come back to that transition because I, I think, I think that's, that's really important for our listeners to understand kind of what they're getting into. And, and on that note, you know, when, when you went from corporate into nonprofit, what was that adjustment like? How, you know, how long did it take for you to get adjusted? What were the, what were the hardest things for you to catch up to um, in order to, you know, for lack of a better term, find your stride? Um, for, for, least, me, yeah. for me, um, a couple of things. One, and this sounds really minor, but it's an adjustment, how you communicate. So when you're in ministry, oftentimes you'll do your closing with blessings or, you know, whatever, depending on, you know, w- what your, your mission is and, and what resonates for you. But I was used to sincerely in regards, right? So suddenly I'm getting all of the kind of Christianese verbiage, you know, both in communications to partners and even in my own emails. So that was a significant change. Hmm. It was intimidating to be around people who had lived these, at least for all intents and purposes, amazing Christian life, a lot were pastors or this and that. So they had dedicated themselves and I'm coming in, you know, divorced and just, you know, the mess that you bring with normal life and feeling like each one of them came out of the womb with a Bible in hand. So it was a bit intimidating. And then the adjustment of realizing that you can't go in for a, uh, a sale like you do in for profit and even hiring people. You know, there were people that I could see that had great sales skills, but were they willing to soften them? 
you know, in, in the case of uh, working in a, a Christian organization, you want to also make sure you're praying and, you know, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead. So all of those things to make sure those rough edges didn't turn people away. So there were there were a lot of nuances that had to be done for me. And as I looked at other people to bring into the organization, but still, I would say once I got settled in after say a quarter, you know, three months, I felt pretty comfortable. And, and the skills that I had acquired, you know, through education and experience actually really made it fairly easy to transition. What, you know, as long as you're self-aware and make the adjustments. So Stan, Alisa said something that I'd like to, I'd like to ping you on because um, I, I find that to be true too. You know, nonprofits in a way can have their own language to them, can't they? Right. It's just, it's a, you know, the accounting can be different. The, the terminology can be different without and question. that can be difficult to catch up to. Yes. Without question. Um, you know, for me, I think, the greatest asset that I don't take any credit for this. It was just there in my heart. People would say to me, well, thinking about the transition you're describing, well, what's it take, Stan? The first and foremost thing that enabled me, and by the way, when I, my first day at work, I discovered there was a $60,000 debt hanging over the organization that no one bothered to share with me when we were in the recruitment phase of the process. So I, I but I did know one thing, like Elisa, uh, I knew that God had opened this door for me and that my passion was overwhelming. I didn't realize it at the time, but that ended up being my greatest tool in my briefcase because you know with some people you can use the right language you can come up with the correct bylines but really what closes the deal is if the presenter has an incredible passion for what it is they're doing and I had that passion again I don't give myself any credit it was just there already but as soon as they read my passion I had instant access to whoever it was I was presenting to. Um, And then once they realized that we were running crossroads, just like they were running Chick-fil-A or whatever other organization they were corporately involved with, you know, the, the door got even wider for us. Uh, there's there's a tremendous sense out there, and I, I think it's true throughout America, tremendous sense of wanting to make life better for those who need a little bit of assistance. But oftentimes, as Elisa alluded to, the puzzle gets real jumbled, and you're not sure where or how to do that. But when you come with passion one and two, business savvy about the organization you're managing, uh, credibility becomes much easier. So Stan, I'd like to, I'd like to follow up on that. You said that when you, when you joined, um, there is a a $50,000 debt that um, uh, wasn't, wasn't uh, overly enthusiastically disclosed to you. Um, 
did, did your, did your business background help you address that debt in a way that maybe would not have been as effective had you not had that background? Without question. And I wish it had been 50, but it was 60. 60. Okay. Yeah. It's $10,000 among friends. Yeah. Uh, Not only my nonprofit experience, but the business experience running my own organization, my own business there for a while taught me how important it was to cross T's and dot I's. And again, because we dealt with so much of the private sector, corporate community in Metro Atlanta, um, you know, to demonstrate that this organization was about basic business principles along with our mission, uh, that just, it, it made the task much easier. Now, again, when I discovered the $60,000 debt and what I hadn't said so far, the population we were working with in Metro Atlanta is a population that most citizens, just like in Cleveland, Ohio, or LA, or San Francisco, it's a population that a lot of folks already have preconceived notions about. So you can imagine, the, and I never thought of myself as a salesperson, but you can imagine the amount of effort going into having to change minds about that situation we call homelessness in America uh, to then turn around and ask them to get on this particular train to help make, make life better. But again, to answer your question, Mike, because of my business background, background that I could take that and I could marry it up to my incredible passion for what I was being asked to do, it it took a while to get rid of that debt, but it it turned into a win-win situation. And thankfully, when I left the organization, its balance sheet was over a million dollars. All right. Well, congratulations. Now, Elisa, let me let me ask you that sort of a similar question, but a little bit differently. You know, as as you join as you join your nonprofit and you got selling in over those three months, what skill did you learn was the most valuable? What skill did you bring to the table walking in that you said, "Oh, thank goodness," or maybe people said to you, "Thank goodness you know how to do this because we really need help here." Gotcha. Um, so yeah, it's different in, from the first role to the role now. So, okay. so I would say um, it it was having that sales management experience. That was um, that, and honestly, um, you would think that nonprofits are just. I wouldn't say well-managed, but they think that they're happy places. Everyone must be happy. They love Jesus. They're helping with a good mission, but it doesn't mean that's always the case. So part of what I brought was my positivity that I didn't realize was people so desperately wanted. And the other part was the, um, was the experience in sales management that could help with philanthropy and communications. But then, and and I, I need to piggyback off of what Stan said, I I realized the more I got involved in nonprofit that there were a number of individuals leading departments and organizations who didn't have the business background. 
and it did cause issues. And so there was a real benefit having someone, you know, with my banking, finance, leadership experience, it really did help fill a gap that wasn't always being filled in a nonprofit. So definitely that's, that's critical. And I also agree with Stan that um, if you do decide to go into nonprofit, it's good to ask a lot of really good, um, challenging questions because transparency don't expect there to be more transparency in a nonprofit in terms of their challenges, as opposed to a for-profit, just because, you know, maybe it's a Christian organization does not mean that they're going to share everything that you probably should know. Um, so you've got to ask those tough questions. Don't yeah. make assumptions. Yeah. So Alicia, you, you said something that I want to, I, I want to capitalize on a little bit. Um, you, you talk about, yeah, I I do think there's a con- there's a conception there's a there's a a bias or even um, a stereotype that that nonprofits are are sort of happy la vida dolce kind of places because you don't have the pressure cooker of being on Wall Street, right? And as if there's just those two extremes and nothing in between, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know having been involved pretty heavily in one nonprofit in particular that was struggling. I think that I think that morale, I think that morale in 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 a nonprofit can actually be much more challenging than in an organization, um, especially if things aren't going well. And, and I say that because, you know, in a in a business organization, if things aren't going well, I think you have a lot more tools available to turn things around. Right? I, I as a practice leader, can say, well, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to sell more projects, right? Or I'm going to get more revenue to the door by cutting prices, whatever. And I'm glad John Ray's not here. He would cut me off if I said that, but you know, but whatever it takes, you know, I have more tools available to me, but with a nonprofit, when things aren't, when things aren't going well, I don't, I think nonprofits have a, a little bit of a harder time turning things around because first of all, the revenue cycle is so different. You know, you typically have very, you have narrow windows of opportunity to, to bring in new revenue, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and also I think be, because people in nonprofits are, uh, you know, they join the, like you, they, they typically join a nonprofit because they're so mission driven. If they feel that mission being constrained, I think it can be very demoralizing as well. And so I, I'd love you and both you and Stan to comment on that. Is it in fact more difficult? in some cases, to maintain morale inside of a nonprofit? Yes, I would say yes. And um, (laughs) uh, apologies to any nonprofits I've worked for in the past, but honestly, I would say the morale was better in my for-profit experiences than my nonprofit. And part of that um, was some of the clunkiness of the experience or even, um, you know, maybe a little bit more focus on the mission and a little bit less on taking care of the people. And for whatever reason, for me, my passion is to see people thrive both globally and my team. And so we're very holistic with the international mission. And so I wanted to be holistic with our U.S. team as well. So just to share with folks who might be interested in this, we are going through a dream manager training program. Uh, Matthew Kelly wrote this book called Dream Manager, and it's about really unpacking the dreams of your team, both personal and professional. And if you can help them focus on that and actually even make adjustments to your own organization, um, culturally and policies and things where it makes sense, 
you know, in one case, he uh, there was a large organization that had low skilled people and they were out all the time, but it was because they couldn't get to work. He ended up having a shuttle where people met at different hubs and then suddenly, you know, morale and attendance was higher. So being more sensitive to the needs of your people in a very intentional way. And so I reached out to Matthew Kelly and we were invited to go through the training. It's a year process and we're going to embed it in our culture. But that's because I feel like it's kind of hypocritical to say, hey, we're helping people in these remote, unreached areas to thrive and then not addressing the needs of our own organization. So um, I think that's part of the rub where we get so wrapped up in the mission that maybe sometimes we forget we have a mission to the people, you know, within our U.S. group as well. I can't speak for every org, but that's been my perception with some and that, hey, if you're a nonprofit, you know, you had to make these sacrifices. So what if you can't pay your mortgage easily or you don't have medical benefits? Right. But then you don't have a thriving team and it's going to end up playing out in production and everything else. Stan, anything you'd like to add to that? Well, uh, yes, I wouldn't disagree with anything she said there, but when I got to Crossroads, there were several staff members with college degrees. They were not totally in touch with the population we served. So one of my first big challenges, they had already reached the negative morale point, if you will. One of my first challenges was to remake the staff. There were a couple of folks that were already there that were top-notch that fully empathized with the population we were working with, but I really flipped the switch at Crossroads in that I started to employ people that had come to us to receive our services, meaning formerly folks who were homeless, men and women. That was probably in all my years the smartest management decision I made because it made my job so much easier in that, if you'll excuse the expression, I got rid of a whole lot of BS much sooner than if a bunch of degree people had sat down and tried to figure all that out. So I was really fortunate. And it wasn't that I, you know, I had some kind of special training to know to do that. It just made common sense to me. And then long-term, the benefit of that is that the people that were financially supporting, supporting us really warmed up to the fact that, wait a minute, you had former people coming to you for service and now they're moving into the workforce so it turned into a real bonus. I didn't anticipate that. I just did it because I thought they've been there. They know what it is I'm trying to raise money and resources for. So let me listen to them about what the geography looks like. So um, so are, are there any skills or or abilities that you developed in business that maybe you wish you could use more? Stan, anything come to mind? Something that you don't use as much, maybe as much as you thought or as much as, much as you would like to? You know, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but that 
intangible, and I'll just name it that be it God or the Holy Spirit placed it in my life, the intangible that I keep referring to is that word passion. And so I went to school and learned the business school. I ran a business, so I learned those skill sets. So with that luggage in hand, the passion was already there, but I would never, never in my wildest expectations taken on a job like this without that passion, that commitment to the mission that was there. I know that sounds awfully simplistic, but that's... Well, look, I I think think to be fair, there's a lot to it. Um, My favorite business book, period. There's, there's no tie. There's no close second to start with why by Simon Sinek and, and the fundamental thesis of that book. And by the way, I have an uncomfortable man crush on Simon Sinek. My, my, <laughs> my dream is to get him on this podcast. He will never come. Um, but, but his core thesis, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And that's not just customers, but they all, but, but also the people that you work with. And, yeah. you know, you, you spoke of something about, how you hired and that you actually hired from your clientele, if you will. And there was a case study that either in, si- either in Simon's book, I call him Simon, he calls me, who the heck are you? But either in his book or, or the successor book, Find Your Why, um, they, they talked about a, a study of a, actually a, um, of a, a telemarketing camp, a telemarketing firm that did fundraising for nonprofits. Um, no, it was it was it was uh, it was a hospital that did fundraising. So they have a they'd have a benevolence fund for patients. That's what it was, and they found that that simply by by bringing in people to meet the uh, meet the telemarketers who had been helped by that program, sure. that their effectiveness went up by something like thirty percent. Absolutely. Because it just gave people a sense as to why they were doing it, right? It became real. So that that organization made it a point to bring in somebody who'd been helped by the program once a month to talk to everybody. And that was as as motivating as 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 anybody. And in fact, an interesting thing is that it actually turned the lower performers into the highest performers because they had they had a cod, they had some people that just like telemarketing, right? They were if they hadn't done it for them, they would have done it in a boiler room someplace, right? And they were just going to call people and get money because that's the way they were wired. Yeah. But for other for other people that that did sort of face that call reluctance, if you will, being enrolled in a higher calling purpose and mission all of a sudden made them go from being the, the bottom performers to the top performers. So th- that, for what it's worth, I think that completely meshes with the empirical data that's out there in terms of how that can be a very powerful uh, and transformative decision. It certainly worked for us. Um, let me ask ask this. We're, we're talking to Elisa Goodwin and Stan Dawson. The topic is: Should I get a job uh, with a nonprofit? Um, what in your minds, if any, is? And I'd like both of you to answer this, or each of you to answer it. What in your mind is is the most common? misconception or misunderstanding about working for a nonprofit? What do, what do most people think working for a nonprofit is like that really isn't true at all? I just recently heard um, a perception that 
you are not going to get the same quality experience because you've got people in nonprofit who maybe couldn't make the cut in for-profit um, and, and that you're not going to get paid what you're worth. And I think both of those are true and not true. It just depends on the organization like anywhere else. I, I almost think, and this is at least in a small nonprofit, and I've worked in small and large ones, in a, in a relatively small organization, it's kind, it reminds me of a small bank environment where you got to wear a lot of different hats. So it really exposed you to a lot of areas that otherwise you may not. In a, lar- in a commercial bank, you're siloed. And in a really large organization, a nonprofit, typically you have your scope of responsibility and you don't go beyond that typically. And so I think it can really challenge you and allow you to see what, you know, what you enjoy most and then grow in that. I think the disadvantage is that in most nonprofits, I want to make sure people hear this, like you, you will get a lot of good experience, but you won't necessarily have a lot of time to continue to grow, except in the practical application within the job. You know, one out of the five or six that I worked at really was already so solid in their infrastructure and workings that you had the space to maybe get higher education and different things. But in most of them, they, they oftentimes refer to it as we're building the plane while we're flying it, which makes it a lot more difficult to get the additional refinement of your skills, but you will get a lot through experience. So I would say from that perspective, there's plus and minuses. And from that, the, the, you know, the standpoint of salary, um, I think it could go either way. I see people who are overpaid in the industry and I see people who are underpaid. So really either way, I mean, it's just hit or miss depending on where you end up working and that's up to you in terms of how well you vet the organizations that you choose to apply to. Stan, how about you? Any misconceptions about working for a nonprofit you'd like to dispel our audience of? Well, at least in the arena I was in, in Metro Atlanta, uh, the nonprofit industry as a whole has, the level of water has gone up, not down, meaning more and more organizations or they don't survive are providing a living wage with decent benefits. When I got to Crossroads, there was not anything other than a sort of indirectly connected health insurance policy, but that was it. But most nonprofits now that have any kind of a history, at least in the homeless arena, are paying a livable wage, um, have benefits, and it's not like it was, oh, 25 years ago. Now, what I discovered at Crossroads the other emotional side of it, all of us are human beings. We all bleed red blood. But the pressure of the arena I was in can be very intense, almost on a daily basis. So you don't have a ton of happy faces running around and smiling and patting each other on the back. But for those that have the passion down deep, they they emotionally do just fine. 
Um, we know we're running out of time here. I want to make sure you guys can get back to, to serving your constituencies and fulfilling your missions. But a question I did want to get to is, you know, for somebody who's out there thinking about thinking about joining a nonprofit, moving their career into the nonprofit sector, whether temporarily or permanently, what in your mind is the biggest risk of doing that? What is there a risk to doing that? And if so, what 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 is the biggest one in your minds? I think, um, well, first, they need to realize that the grass is not greener on the other side. It really is important for them to examine the whys behind what they're thinking about doing. If it's just because they're not happy with the job and they have um, maybe unrealistic expectations that things are going to be rosier in a nonprofit, that's not a good reason to do it. If, as Stan said, they've got a passion and they really want to invest their talents in a mission that's going to resonate for them, that's awesome. But also, if they think that um, they're not doing enough in their current job, I would challenge them to consider how to mobilize the opportunities that they do have. You know, if they're making a lot of money, we need them. Stan and I and nonprofit need them to fund the work, right? And to be board members and different things. You know, they can be salt and light, if you will, in their current situation. There are a lot of business leaders who are Christian, who help to empower and bless and be a light to their own corporations, as well as to the business community at large. So I would just challenge them to make sure that they're making the decision for the for the right reason, because they can get that same satisfaction by continuing in a role in for profit. But if they do decide that they want to be a part of it, I would not let them be deterred by the thought of, well, I'm not going to make the same amount of money. I have yet to meet someone who's going from for profit to nonprofit who doesn't talk about, well, I don't know if I'm ready to take a pay cut. Don't walk in anticipating a pay cut. Do your homework. There's a lot of data. I'd be happy to share some with you so you can see what the typical salaries are and the ranges. Be aggressive to get what you deserve. There's a chance. Not everybody's like me and is going to take a big pay cut. So don't let that deter you. But, you know, move on. Move, make the decision for the right reasons. Stan, how about you? Uh, Lisa detailed it very well. I will go back. You're going to stop calling me Stan and start calling me passion. (laughs) But I would, particularly with what I was called to do, I would, you, I would have to measure on a scale of one to 10, I'd have to measure where that passion was. Now doing that involves a lot more than a resume. It involves a lot of building relationship with another person before you employ them. But if that passion level, because the work is too hard, it's too challenging, you get slapped in the face way too many times. Against that backdrop, if their passion meter is not 8.5 to 10, they're not going to last, and you're doing them a disservice as well as the organization. Um, Stan and Elise, this has been a great conversation. We're, we're running out of time, and, and there are a lot of more questions that we could have covered but just didn't have time to. Uh, would it be okay if somebody wants to contact you maybe to go deeper into a question we covered or, or cover a question that we didn't? And if so, what's the best way for them to contact you? For me, the best way is Elisa, E-L-I-S-A, at missionhope.org. 
Stan? And for me, it's lowercase letters, S-A-D-667 at iCloud.com. Okay. Well, thank you. And that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Elisa Goodwin and Stan Passion Dawson so much for joining us and sharing their expertise (laughs) with us today. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. <laughs>